In July of 1981, millions around the world were drawn to their televisions. In some parts of the world, people got up early in the morning to watch. On the other side of the globe, others stayed up well past midnight. Everyone, it seemed, wanted to be a part of the fairy tale. We all wanted to say that we witnessed the happily ever after moment when the prince and the princess said, I do. Charles, the Prince of Wales, and his young, beautiful, shy bride, Lady Diana Spencer, recited their vows before the Archbishop of Canterbury, while the Queen and the rest of the royal family and the world looked on. They departed the cathedral in a horse-drawn carriage and later waved to the adoring crowd from the balcony of Buckingham Palace, the same balcony where British monarchs had celebrated the birth of princes and princesses and the end of wars. All was right in the empire. But deep down, none of us really believed in fairy tales anymore. Perhaps we were just too cynical. There was an inkling that things were not as they seemed when Charles responded to a reporter's shouted question on the day they announced their engagement. Are you in love? I suppose. Whatever love is, he replied. Diana's shocked expression said it all. So sit back and enjoy a bit of champagne, tinged with the bitterness of lime, as we explore the sad tale of the death of a princess. began almost immediately. Affairs, fights, bulimia, the Princess of Wales being separated and isolated from friends and family. Two sons were born, first William, then Harry, but still the rumors and the innuendo raged. Jealousy, hate. Finally, after years of trying to cover up the toxic fairy tale, the palace and the royal family relented. The couple separated and eventually divorced, their disputes pouring over into the media. Perhaps, the couriers thought, now the princess would disappear from public life. But they were wrong. She took on an even higher profile. She began to speak out on causes that were important to her, such as AIDS and landmines. She was the most photographed woman in the world, and many said the most admired. And she also entered into highly publicized relationships with rich and famous men. One of those men was Dodi Fayad. Dodi's father, Mohammed Fayyad, was one of the wealthiest men in Europe. He was born in Egypt, but had significant financial interests in Europe and Great Britain. At one time, he owned Harrods, the famous London department store. 
It was there, in fact, that he first met the Prince and Princess of Wales. After her divorce, the Princess began dating his son Dodie. Early in 1997, he invited her and his sons to join him on his yacht in the Mediterranean. In August, she joined him again, this time without her sons. They sailed the French and Italian Riviera. On August 30th, they arrived in Paris. They had planned to have dinner at the Ritz, but there were so many paparazzi present, they decided to leave and go to Dodie's apartment. Shortly after midnight, knowing that paparazzi were nearby, Mohammed Fayad ordered a decoy car to leave from the front of the hotel while his personal head of security and chauffeur, Henri Paul, shuttled the Princess of Wales and Dodi Fayad out another door. Paul slid behind the wheel of a black Mercedes-Benz W140. Diana's security guard, Trevor Rees-Jones, got into the front seat next to him. Dodie climbed in the back seat, behind the driver, while Diana was next to him, behind Rees-Jones. None of them were wearing seatbelts. Paul sped away, chased by paparazzi on Vespas and motorcycles and cars. Paul pressed the accelerator to 65 miles an hour, almost double the posted speed limit. The Mercedes winded through the streets of Paris and entered a tunnel. At this point, he lost control of the vehicle. It struck the right wall and careened head-on into a pillar. The car spun backwards and crashed into a stone wall, crumpling the rear end. When the vehicle finally came to rest, some of the pursuing paparazzi fled, but some stayed and tried to help. Police arrived, and the ambulance sirens could be heard screaming through the streets as they rushed to the crash site. Bayad and Henri Paul, the driver, were dead at the scene. Trevor Rees-Jones was alive with serious facial and head injuries. As they attended to the princess, some witnesses heard her moan, Oh my God! Oh my God! She was pale, but there was very little blood. She didn't appear to have any serious external injuries. As they were removing her from the car, though, she went into shock and then into cardiac arrest. Emergency personnel performed CPR. Her heart started beating, and she was rushed to the nearby hospital. Upon arriving at the hospital, she was rushed into emergency surgery, but there was little the doctors could do. The horrific crash had displaced her heart from the left to the right side of her chest cavity and tore the vena cava and the pericardium. Doctors pronounced her dead at 4 a.m. Meanwhile, the police investigated the accident. They ordered blood tests on Henri Paul, the driver. His blood alcohol level was found to be over three times the legal limit in France, which equates to twice the legal limit in the United States, about 1.6. He was also found to have taken a quantity of prescription painkillers 
which further diminished his judgment and reflexes. The original police inquiry focused on the paparazzi chasing the car. Nine reporters were arrested and charged with manslaughter. Eventually, those charges were dropped. Three photographers were also charged, and they went to trial. But in the end, all were acquitted. Prince Charles and Diana's sisters flew to Paris to claim her body and fly her back to England. When the tragic news broke, the reaction was immediate and bordered on the hysterical. Crowds converged on Kensington Palace, her home, leaving flowers, stuffed animals, and homemade memorials outside the fence. The royal family seemed stunned by the public reaction. The queen, relying on tradition and protocol, originally insisted that Diana's funeral should be a private, dignified affair. When the public was clamoring for the equivalent of a state funeral. The Queen refused to allow the royal standard to be flown at half-staff over Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle, but eventually she relented and allowed the British flag to be lowered. The funeral was one of the largest in British history. Rather than political figures, the program featured representatives of the charities that Diana supported, musicians, pop culture icons. Elton John wrote and performed an iconic song in her honor. In the weeks following her death, the suicide rate in England and Wales rose by 17%. In women in the age group between 25 and 44, the increase was a stunning 45%. Could it have really happened, many people asked? Could could such a vibrant, beautiful, famous woman be killed in an everyday car accident? Many people didn't think so. Chiefly, Dodi Fayad's father, Mohammed Fayad. Within a week of his son's death, Fayad announced that Dodi and the princess had been murdered. The culprits? MI5. The British intelligence agency. Who ordered the hit? None other than Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, husband to Queen Elizabeth, Diana's former father-in-law. According to Fayed's theory, Diana was pregnant, and on the very night of her death, she and Dodie had planned to announce their engagement. The royal family, Fayed believed, was incensed that the mother of the future king of England would give birth to a half-Egyptian and, and worse, a Muslim child who would be related by blood to the royal family. This could not be allowed. Diana had to die. In 2004, seven years after her death, the response to the growing rumors of a cover-up forced the authorities in England to order an inquest into Diana's death. The coroner of the Queen's household, Michael Burgess, ordered the head of the Metro Police, Sir John Stevens, to make inquiries, to put to rest the rumors. This investigation was eventually codenamed Operation Paget. Sir John finally issued an 832-page report 
and said that the case was more complex than it first appeared. There were a number of open questions that deserved to be answered. He recommended that an open inquest be held, and it was. A jury was impaneled, and Lord Justice Scott Baker represented the Queen's household. Some of the numerous questions that he examined included, Was Diana pregnant? Why were members of MI5 in Paris that weekend? Were Diana and Dodie engaged? What about the white Fiat that made contact with the Mercedes? Was there a bright strobe light that blinded Paul just as he entered the tunnel? Was Henri Paul really intoxicated? Or had MI5 or the British Army substituted someone else's blood for his? Finally, in April of 2008, the coroner's jury, following a hearing that lasted more than six months, and after hearing 278 witnesses, concluded that the princess was unlawfully killed by Henri Paul's grossly negligent driving while intoxicated, and also because none of the occupants in the car were wearing seatbelts. So, the fairy tale ended in a dark tunnel in Paris on a summer night in 1997. But Diana, the people's princess, lives on in our memories, as young, beautiful, and vivacious as ever. Dad, I'm all sad now. I knew you would be. <laughs> I, I know I was only, you know, two and a half when she died, but that woman was fabulous. You don't remember where you were when we heard that, do you? I sure don't. Where was I? We were in um, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We had Ooh. gone down for a weekend trip, and we walked into a bakery to get some uh, pastries and some coffee, and we saw it on the TV screen. Aww. We saw the bulletin. I love Eureka Springs. Sad. Maybe we should uh, do a do a special remote broadcast from Eureka Springs. It, it was, at one time the sin capital of Arkansas with illegal gambling and bootlegging. So, Oh, we should. I think if we could uh, get some funding to do a special trip down there, that would be a capital idea. Yes. Speaking of funding, <laughs> we do have ways that you can support us now. If you want to help us go to Eureka Springs or do something fun like that, or if you just want us to keep doing this because it does cost money. Some ways that you can support us are through our really awesome merch that was designed by Kansas City designer Lucy Besh. Isn't our merch awesome, Dad? It is. I've showed it to several people, and I think I'm getting some orders. Yes, it's super fun. And then we also have a fan club membership where um, you can get a merch discount. You can get a free something that's still uh, TBD as we're recording, but will be determined by the time this comes out and a couple of other things. I believe that's all we're offering right now. But yeah, if you 
feel if you feel so inclined to support us, if you love our show and want to keep listening, that's the best way to help us. And leaving a review or telling your friends about us if you um, are, if you don't have the financial means right now. I know it's a rough time. So even just telling your friends about us, that is a great help as well. Yes. Well said. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Thank let's you. talk about some fashion. fashion or cocktails, one of the two. First, we have Trends of the Crime. Okay. So, and I'm excited about this because Diana's fashion influence is like really high right now. And we'll get to that. But first, I want to talk about her uh, personal style as a whole. So prior to entering the royal family, Diana was working as a nanny. So she had a practical wardrobe, very informal. Um, and then, and she also only owned three pieces of clothing. And the rest of her wardrobe came from a communal closet she shared with her roommates. Her favorite designers, uh, once she was able to afford clothing, once she entered the royal family, her favorite designers were Catherine Walker, Emmanuel Dior, and Versace. And if you remember from our season one finale, all about the assassination of Johnny Versace, uh, Diana attended his funeral. So they were close and she loved his designs as well. Her signature pieces were wide-shouldered, two-piece skirt sets, plunging gowns with flowing skirts, statement earrings, colorful prints, and jeweled chokers. While she followed the classic 80s fashion trends, she was always mindful of what her wardrobe said to the public, uh, whether that was, you know, good or controversial. We'll get to that more later. And she often wore controversial looks to her charitable events. Her debut look as a royal was the famous strapless black Emmanuel gown worn to a recital in London. It was very scandalous. Do you remember this? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's a beautiful dress, but she had, you know, cleavage showing and no straps. So she looked great, though. Diana was also known for not wearing gloves when around the public. Queen Elizabeth always wore gloves to avoid germs, but Diana understood that skin-to-skin contact was more meaningful. She wore chunky jewelry so that children could play with it and stopped wearing hats to children's hospitals because you can't cuddle in a hat. So sweet. And this, she was really famous about the no gloves during the AIDS uh, Mm -hmm. epidemic because um, it was at first thought... You know, that maybe who knows how you can get AIDS. Maybe you can get it. It was like COVID, you know, we didn't know how you could really get it at first. And she was out out there shaking hands and um, making skin to skin contact. So anything to add there, Dad? Well, I, I do have a question. I mean, I've read that the queen mandates that all women in the royal family and public appearances still have to wear pantyhose or, or stockings of some sort. Mm-hmm. Any knowledge whether... Diana conformed to that, or was she a rebel there too? I don't know for sure. I'm guessing that she didn't always conform to that, but I there are a lot of photos of her in stockings and tights. Um, I know that she was rebellious in wearing pants very often. Um, that wasn't common in the royal family. Okay, she did wear tights a lot, so maybe she did. I'm I'm not. I didn't find anything about that in particular. If you know, let us know. Uh, This one was funny. Diana had cleavage bags designed, which were little clutch purses that she covered her cleavage with when she stepped out of cars. So since she was 
you know, the only one showing her, showing her cleavage. She was like, okay, at least I'll cover it when I get out of the car. So I thought that was cute. A good idea, practical idea. Uh, so her wedding gown is still one of the most famous and influential wedding gowns. I mean, wedding gown trends are still coming from this gown. I worked in bridal for eight and a half years and things like big bows that were on her dress, the big puffy sleeves. I mean, they're not as dramatic in mainstream bridal, but they do still come around every season. Uh, Her gown had a 25 foot train, ruffles and bows, dramatic shoulders, And just hours after the wedding, replicas of the gown began surfacing at a fraction of the cost. Now, when I looked at this gown, gotta be honest, it's probably because I never lived in the 80s. I thought it was hideous. It did start a big, like I said, a lot of bridal trends still refer back to that. Now, Megan's gowns were amazing. I will always love her wedding gowns. The complete opposite of Diana's, totally simple. Anyway... Another uh, famous look from Diana was her revenge dress. Diana was spotted in a risque, really wasn't that risque, but it was for the royal family, black off-the-shoulder bodycon dress with a jeweled choker, transparent tights, and black heels on the day that it was publicly announced that Charles was having an affair with Camilla. Man, what a way to get some revenge. Not a revenge body, but a revenge dress. See, she was fabulous. Now, that is the way that I like to assert my, you know, confidence is through my clothing. So, okay, I get it. Do you have a revenge dress? I haven't needed one. Okay, my husband is awesome. Okay, and and I don't really have enemies, so I haven't knock on wood that I know of. (laughs) Maybe I do. I don't know. Maybe I should look into that. According to recent research, Diana is the most influential royal family member in fashion. And this is a quote by Charlotte Austin. Diana's lasting legacy as a trendsetter and continual source of inspiration for generations of designers and fashion lovers makes the Diana effect an incredibly powerful fashion source. Her biggest trendsetting styles are pearl embellishments, little black dresses, thanks to the revenge dress, women's pantsuits, bodycon dresses, blue velvet, and bold shoulders, and athleisure. If you see photos of Haley Bieber and Gigi Hadid, that is like the modern streetwear of Diana streetwear, like oversized sweatshirts, bicycle shorts, you know, chunky tennis shoes. Like it's crazy. They pull, I don't know if they know they're doing this, but they are completely pulling their uh, style from Diana. Next, I just have one more small little segment A big reason we wanted to do Princess Diana's case now was because of The Crown. I still have not yet watched season four. I'm on season two. Uh, But I wanted to know how accurate The Crown portrayed Diana's style. So I found a YouTube video called The Crown's Fashion, The Legacy of Princess Diana by Mina Lay. She had this to say. Diana is dressed vibrantly in the show. This mirrors how she expressed herself through fashion in real life. As I alluded to earlier, she was clearly, you know, she had favorite designers. She really loved dressing and expressing herself in that way. Her style moves through phases in season four of The Crown. It starts as preppy and colorful, then becomes full of classic 80s dresses. And the season ends with her style being more chic and streamlined with suits and gowns. 
And I thought this was interesting. Uh, the costume designers chose a color palette that Diana would wear, but also chose some brighter colors for her that the royal family would never wear, like reds, purples, and bright greens. And they did this to create a strong visual distinction between her and them. And all of her costumes on the show were created using actual vintage fabrics. So are they saying that some of those bright colors that are portrayed in the show, she didn't necessarily wear that that was more just a dramatic effect? Yes, okay. it was. I, I'm guessing it was so that you subconsciously could tell that she did not all exactly fit in to their mold, um, mm-hmm. especially through her style. So. Like, if she was wearing a bright red and the queen's wearing, like, a muted gray, like, they clearly look totally different. Right. So, I often love shows because of the costume design, like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I mean, I mean, it's an amazing show, but, like, the costume design just keeps me totally engaged. Did you notice anything in season four with Diana's style compared to her in real life or anything like that? Well, not necessarily Diana, but I must say. Charles was rocking those kilts. Oh, I can't wait. When you go to Scotland, you wear kilts. And yeah, Charles was rocking those kilts throughout the uh, throughout the show. All right. See, where I am, Charles is still a child. So he's maybe he's wearing kilts, but he's he doesn't have a big part, so I'm not paying attention to him. Um, if you're not watching The Crown, what are you doing? It's really good. Yeah, it's an amazing it, it's an amazing show. Um Obviously, a lot of dramatic license, but I think they I think they stick closely to the historical record, though, of course, I mean, you're always having to invent dialogue. We don't know exactly what happened between Charles and Diana behind closed doors. But from what we do know, I I think they've done a fairly credible job of creating a a what if universe. Mm -hmm. And the reason I waited to watch it was because I was worried it'd be boring. But it is not boring. So if that's what you're worried about, there is plenty of juicy drama for you. All right, Dad, let's chat about this cocktail today. What is it? Why'd you choose it? All that jazz. I looked up uh, what uh, Princess Diana's favorite cocktail was, and it was a peach bellini, which is peach nectar and uh, champagne. But it is... January in Kansas, and peaches are nowhere to be found around here. Um, I I suppose I could have gotten some frozen peaches, but that wouldn't have been the same. So uh, instead of that, I'm mixing kind of Diana and uh, um, Megan. Megan, Megan Markle's favorite cocktail. She's a margarita girl. So uh, today's cocktail Uh, honoring both these kind of rebels in the royal family, is a champagne margarita, uh, courtesy of Rick Bayless's uh, Taste of Mexico uh, cookbook in the Fonterra restaurant in Chicago. It's a simple concoction of uh, fresh-squeezed lime juice, uh, Cointreau, which is an orange liqueur, tequila, and topped with a good champagne or Prosecco. And this is a Norland family favorite. Yes, it is. We drink these at all of like all holidays. Anytime dad wants to make it for us, we will gladly have a champagne margarita. My sister, Allie, shout out. Uh, This is her absolute favorite. 
All right. Um, and also, I wanted to point out that I feel like, to me, Megan is like my royal icon, you know, because I didn't have Diana because I was a baby or not alive yet. Um, and I've, I don't know, I, I think that it's cool that we have these people willing to kind of stir the pot and try and make, I don't know, make things more modern. And I know that they've left the royal family, of course, but. Um, I'm certainly hoping that, that Megan's life turns out differently than, than Diana's. And I, I think it will. She seems to have a, a network of support, uh, you know, both in, in her own circle and also uh, her husband. Mm-hmm. Seems to be very supportive of of her, so I'm hoping that this fairy tale uh, that we're part of today does uh, end happily ever after. Oh yes, I I hope so. All right, so I wanted to chat about the affairs that went on between uh, Charles and Diana, and I got this information from an article called. The Truth About Prince Charles's and Princess Diana's Romances and Affairs by Amy McEldon for Harper's Bazaar. So first on the list, we have Barry Manneke, who was Diana's bodyguard. In tapes with Diana's voice coach, they were called the Settlin Tapes, that was the voice coach's last name, Diana described Barry as the greatest love she'd ever had. Although she didn't mention Manneke's name in the tapes, she was likely talking about him when she said that her greatest love died in a motorcycle accident in 1987. This was how he famously died. She also stated that she believed that his death was planned once it was found out that the two were in love. What do you think about that? It's the first time I've heard this story. Really? Um, yeah. I think I've heard it. I mean, I've heard I've heard about some of her lovers, but I'd I'd never heard this one. Yeah, you know, I know as as things devolved between Charles and Diana that she became very concerned. Some might even say paranoid. She there there's some record that she even foresaw her death that it would happen in a car accident that someone would tamper with the car to make it look like an accident, but she felt. She was going to be killed because of the royal family's dissatisfaction with her. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot had, there's a lot to be said about human intuition. And I don't know if I believe that any of these, any of these deaths were conspiracy or conspiracies, but I do think a lot of people's intuition gets overlooked um, when there's a more logical something involved. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's awful that she even had to worry about that because most of us don't have to worry about our family plotting to murder us. So that's awful. Next, we have James Hewitt. He was a cavalry officer and her writing instructor. Their relationship started after the affair with Manneke ended, and it took place from 1986 to 1991. Do you know more about this one? Well, I know there there are rumors persisting to this day that that Hewitt is actually uh, Prince Harry's father. Ooh. 
primarily, I think, because of the red hair. Red but hair. but the the Spencer family also has has red hair. So um, I feel like a lot of blonde people produce redheaded children, and she had blonde hair. And and a lot of her ancestors were redheaded. So I I wouldn't say that's proof positive, but. The fact that you know it was going on about the same time she became pregnant with with Harry has always been a a rumor floating mm-hmm. around. Next, we have James Gilby. This one is kind of a stretch. Um, he was an old friend of Diana's that she often turned to during rough times in her marriage, and the two of them went through the Squidgy Gate scandal. This was named after the nickname that James calls Diana during the recording of a 1989 phone call um, about New Year's Eve. The conversation began as seemingly innocent, but then became more intimate with Gilby alluding to playing with himself and asking Diana to kiss him. However, Gilby has reportedly maintained to this day that he and Diana were just friends. I've never heard of that one either. Squiddy Gate, huh? I guess. Okay. Yeah, Squiddy. Oops, I said it wrong. Okay. I don't know. It could have been like a joke, you know? I think so. He also looked nothing like any of the other men. <laughs> Didn't look like her type, totally, but what do I know? All right, next we have Oliver Hoare. Uh, Diana and art dealer Hoare began their affair in 1992. Uh and keep in mind that Diana and Charles's divorce wasn't announced until December of 1992. It began shortly after her father died, and Hoare was 16 years older than Diana. And Charles was a lot older than she was, too, right? Yeah. 20. No. Oh. I want to say 12, maybe 15, somewhere in that range. Okay. She was 20, and I think he was 33 oh, okay. when they married, I think. Uh, This affair allegedly ended when Hoare's wife threatened to file for divorce unless he ended his romance with Diana. All right. Now, well, you said I forgot someone. Yeah, there was a a doctor that she was also dating after the after the divorce from uh, 96 until early 97. A a plastic surgeon in London, Dr. Hosnet Khan was his name, and they were fairly close. Uh, she had uh, once referred to him to some of her friends as Mr. Wonderful, and uh, she claimed they were soulmates. But uh, the affair ended in, in early 97, and she very shortly thereafter took up with Dodie Fayad. I think you said maybe Dodie was actually a rebound romance, and that could very well be. But there was another, where I read that, there was another part that said that. Um, Khan was his last name. Mm-hmm. He thought that they broke up because of another man. And then she started, you know, then it came out that she was dating Dodie. Then other people think Dodie was a rebound. So I'm not sure of the timeline of anything. I'm also, I also couldn't, didn't see why the two broke up. Something I just read was that, that Khan was, uh, was very concerned about having to live in a bubble with all the publicity. That, mm. You know, he knew it wouldn't just be him and Diana. It would be him and Diana and the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. That is tough if you're, for anyone who's not used to that, I'm sure mm-hmm. it would be difficult. All right. Now we're moving into Charles's for sure affair and then one that is rumored and kind of funny. 
So first we have, of course, his current wife, Camilla Parker Bowles. Camilla and Charles dated in the early 70s, but they remained close after their marriages to other people. They resumed their physical relationship in 1986 during their marriages. Their affair was confirmed in 1993 in a leaked tape recording of an inappropriate conversation between the two that caused quite a scandal for the royal family. Diana famously said in a 1995 interview with BBC's Panorama, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Camilla filed for divorce in January 1995, while Charles and Diana's divorce was finalized in August 1996. Camilla and Charles have been married since February 10th, 2005. In season four of The Crown, this um, this relationship uh, is really delved into quite a bit, Camilla and Charles. They were, they were together from the early 70s. The royal family evidently did not approve of her. Her name was Camilla Shand, so she was not part of the aristocracy like Diana was. Uh, she had a reputation of a party girl. Uh, Charles was not the only man she was, shall we say, dating. When Charles joined the Navy, rumor has it that his uncle, Louis Montbotten, pressured Camilla's family to pressure her to end the relationship and, and marry Andrew Parker Bowles, which she did uh, while while Charles was still, still in the Navy serving his um, serving in his military service. Now, here's another interesting fact about that. Charles and Camilla were dating. Princess Anne, Charles' sister, was dating Andrew Parker Bowles. Oh, funny. And so there's some funny encounters in The the Crown in season season four (laughs) where Charles and and, uh, his sister Anne are talking about Camilla and, and Andrew and comparing certain aspects of things, if you... Get my drift. Oh my gosh! So, so again, just a, a little bit more of the the royal family intrigue there. Hmm. But people have always said that if the royal family had relented and allowed Charles and Camilla to get married, they probably would have had a very happy, lasting marriage because the two, evidently, if there is such a thing as soulmates, were soulmates. I mean, they have they have been together. Mm-hmm. In the heart, I think, for fifty years. So again, just a, another example of the royal family being so concerned about appearances and bloodlines that destroyed a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. Probably destroyed went a long way to destroying Diana's life. Who right. knows what she would have been like if she had not met Charles? Mm-hmm. What a sad way to live, just being that concerned. I mean, how exhausting. Yes. Uh, the. Rumored affair that Charles had was with our queen, Barbara Streisand. She's butter. Like butter. Butter. (laughs) So, um, Charles allegedly had a huge crush on Barbara Streisand, who didn't. The two met on the set of Funny Girl in 1974. 20 years later, they allegedly had a secret rendezvous at the Bel Air Hotel in L.A., and apparently Diana knew all about it. Thoughts? Do you believe? Oh, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> I guess I, I guess if, if JFK could get together with Marilyn Monroe, Prince Charles could get together with Barbara. Who knows? I guess. I guess. Who knows? 
Okay, so now, there is one other one other woman we should mention. Um, do you know who Charles was dating when he met Diana? I do not. He was dating Lady Sarah Spencer, Diana's sister? older sister. Ew. Ugh. So again, quite an interesting scene in The Crown when he comes to call on Sarah and he meets Diana trying to hide from him because she's wearing riding clothes or something. I think she's in a costume. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Coming back from a play. Yes. That was in the YouTube video. Yes. yes. Yep. And he was a lot older than she was. Yes. Okay, so next I had some info about Dodie. Um, you covered a lot of this, Dad, but something that wasn't covered was uh, some of his famous girlfriends that he had. Dodie's rumored girlfriends pre-Diana include Julia Roberts, Brooke Shields, Winona Ryder, and Nancy Sinatra. Dad, do you remember him being in tabloids or anything or hearing about all these girlfriends? I didn't hear about Dodie Fayad until the day he died. So, no, I don't remember anything about him. I did see somewhere, maybe it was in this article. Oh, I'm sorry. This article is called Dodie Fayad, Who Was Princess Diana's Boyfriend by Olivia Blair for Town and Country. Somewhere in this article, it said that he said to somebody, when will I date someone famous enough to get me on the cover of People magazine? And he got what he wished for, but... Unfortunately, he died. And you say shallow? Right, exactly. He just looks kind of like a, yeah. pardon my language, douche. And he was known as a, I have a quote here, as a millionaire playboy with a penchant for famous, attractive women. So that's also why I kind of believe the rebound theory. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem like he was the most genuine guy. So At some point during this time frame, Diana reportedly said to one of her friends, I need another marriage like I need a rash on my face. <laughs> so I I don't think she was looking for true love at this point either. Right. Yeah. Which, after all of that, I don't know that I would be either. It yes. seems like they had a very, um, not a lot of trust in the marriage. And I mean, he wanted to be with someone else and she knew it. Mm-hmm. So that's, yep. that would be incredibly difficult as a wife. Yeah. So. I don't blame her at all for, you know, her transgressions and everything. So next I've got seven conspiracy theories here that you touched on, but I've got um, some extra ones plus a little more detail. And this is from Princess Diana Conspiracy Theories 8, but I only used seven reasons. People believe the crash in Paris wasn't all it seems by Andrew Griffin for The Independent. So the first one, you touched on this one quite a bit. Diana was pregnant. This is what Dodie's father uh, is. Is he still alive? No. Okay. This is what he was convinced of. Um, He said the royal family could not accept that an Egyptian Muslim could eventually be the stepfather of a future king of England. And so it plotted to kill her off. However, there was no sign of pregnancy during the postmortem examination and no sign of pregnancy and further tests on Diana's blood. Her friends also said she was not pregnant. Apparently, her friends knew her menstrual cycle, and they said she's not pregnant. So, I believe them. Yeah, I don't think (laughs) she was either. Uh, Diana believed, the second one is, Diana believed she was going to be killed by the establishment. This one, 
like I said before, I think there that there's a lot to be said about human intuition, especially in women. I think women act on their intuition a lot. Uh, and I found this one very interesting and kind of spooky. Um, Diana gave a letter to her butler, Paul Burrell, that read, I am sitting here at my desk today in October, longing for someone to hug me and encourage me to keep strong and hold my head high. This particular phase in my life is the most dangerous. So-and-so, it doesn't say who, is planning an accident in my car, brake failure, and serious head injury in order to make the path clear for Charles to marry. Spooky, right? It is. It is. When Diana wrote that letter, she had been experiencing problems with her car, voiced the fears about them, and her bodyguard died in a motorcycle accident that she believed to be a conspiracy. And that's what we mentioned before. Despite Diana's concerns for her safety, there appears to be no official suggestion that she would actually be killed, which, of course not. <laughs> for Operation Paget, that Metropolitan Police investigation, you know, did look at this. And again, they didn't find any evidence. But if it was a government conspiracy, certainly uh, the police would be, if not in on it, uh, pressured to ignore it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I might... I'm on the fence because I know that obviously car accidents happen and there was a lot of paparazzi that night. However, when you have that strong of feelings about something and you just have that sickening feeling in your stomach, I don't know. I don't either. I think we have a lot of our brains just have a way of being intuitive, especially if you're really in tune with that and seems like she was. I mean, even if there was no conspiracy, she knew she was going to die. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah. She just knew something was going to happen. So, okay. The third one is the paparazzi made the car crash intentionally. And this um, conspiracy comes from three different theories, I guess. The first one is that the paparazzi chased and pushed Diana's Mercedes to make the crash happen. Mm. I don't. I don't understand why they would do that. I mean, right. she was their bread and butter. I mean, exactly. I think, then they have no paycheck. Right. <laughs> uh, the second one is members of the paparazzi encouraged an environment where a crash could happen. Again, why would they do that? The third is the paparazzi accidentally created a situation that the conspirators exploited to kill the people in the car. I don't really get that one. Can you explain? I think what they're saying is they knew the paparazzi would be there. They knew they'd be chasing them, and this would be an excellent opportunity to kill them and make it look like it was an accident caused by the paparazzi. Ah, I see. Okay. Maybe. It was, however, determined that the paparazzi had not been participating in a conspiracy, which, like we've been saying, they wouldn't do that because she... Generated a lot of income for those people, right. I'm sure. Right. Okay, number four. Driver Henri Paul intentionally caused the crash. This one's interesting as well. Conspiracy theorists believe that he was working for the security services in France, the UK, or both. Some say that Henri being drunk was false and a lie spread by the media to cover up the killing. It's suggested that the body was swapped with another person's so that the toxicology report would appear correct. Yes. Um, however, 
numerous tests showed that Henri's blood and alcohol limit was uh, showed that he was drunk. Yes. Just like JFK's brain was switched with someone else's brain. Right. <laughs> I said it was interesting, not real. <laughs> no, there were witnesses that he had been drinking in the bar hours before he got in the car. I mean, the question I have is, and I don't think it's related to a conspiracy, but why in the world would Muhammad have, have told him, drive the car? I mean, if he, he knew he had a drinking problem, he knew where he'd been, why in the world would you put your son in a car with this guy. Right. Yeah. I saw a lot of people think that there's no way he was drunk. Maybe he was injected with alcohol or like his body was injected with it. Um, I think that would be hard to do. I agree. (laughs) Number five, there was something wrong with the Mercedes. This kind of goes along with the one where Diana knew something was happening. Uh, Conspiracy theorists claim that the Mercedes route was blocked. It was driving at an unusual speed or that something had been tampered with inside the car. While it was driving fast to kind of escape the paparazzi, there was nothing unusual about the way it was driving. I mean, it was driving fast, but it wasn't driving 100 miles an hour. He was going about 65 and a 35 or 40. So, I mean, it was fast. That there were initial reports that he was up to 140 miles an hour, which were, were not true. Yeah, that is very fast. Number six, bright flashes and strange vehicles were on the road. Uh, the flashes came from the photographers and headlights from other cars. None of them appeared to be malicious or part of a conspiracy. One witness testified that she saw a very bright, almost strobe light uh, as the car entered the tunnel. Uh, but they interviewed other people. In fact, they interviewed someone in her car, and she said she never saw it. Hmm. All right. Lastly, uh, this was another pretty common one. People thinking Diana's medical care was deliberately sabotaged. Theorists believe that doctors allowed Diana to die by not treating her in the proper way. This is because um, she was being treated at the scene of the accident. Um, and then going to go to the hospital instead of immediately going to the hospital, which is the way. So in the UK, they immediately take people to the hospital. I believe that's what they do in the US, I'm assuming. Well, maybe, but unless you're unless your heart stops, right. which according to the reports, it did. They got her out of the car and she went into cardiac arrest and they did CPR right there. Right, right. So I think that would happen anywhere. But mm-hmm. If the injuries from the autopsy were correct, she didn't stand a chance. Just can't imagine your heart being shifted to the other side of your chest and everything that would do, tear the vena cava and tear the pericardium, which surrounds the heart. Um, hmm. Something else I saw. Diana was, you mentioned no one was wearing their seatbelts. This raised a lot of red flags for people because she was photographed very often putting on a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. So she wore her seatbelt most of the time. Yeah. So people think um, that she was killed because she was not wearing her seatbelt. I don't know. Something happened where maybe she was told not to wear it because they knew what was going to happen or um, she was killed and then put there. I don't know. What do you think? 
I don't know. Uh, I, I read that too, that she was very almost religious about putting on a seatbelt, but that night it was pretty clear no one in that car had them on. So I, I don't know. I don't know. What's your conclusion about this, Dad? What do you think happened? I think it was a tragic accident. You're so boring. I know. <laughs> we should we'd probably get a lot more a lot more listeners if every time something happened I was just beating the drum that it was a conspiracy that uh <laughs> That's what unseen I'm seeing forces, yes. Unseen forces were at work. So that that's my thought. Now I do I want to play what if for a minute. Uh-huh. What if Diana had not got in the car that night? And what if there was not a vast conspiracy to kill her? What if? Diana had lived. Mm-hmm. What what do you think she would be like today? What do you think the world would be like if she had not died in that car? I wonder if the royal family would be viewed differently. I wonder if they would have chilled out a bit. I wonder if they would be more um, just because of her influence on Americans and American fashion. I kind of wonder if they would have a bigger role here in America, like if we were even more interested in them. I feel like we we're inter- we're really interested in them now because Megan's American and uh-huh. um Harry and Megan have left the royal family. But I wonder if she would have caused even like interest from Americans way before that. I also wonder where her sons would be. Uh-huh. Because I'm sure that this greatly shaped their lives. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I compare her to Jackie Kennedy. I think if we had a Princess Diana, it would have been Jackie Kennedy. I see. I don't know. I just, I kind of imagine two paths. One path, maybe she would have done like Jackie did and married a a very wealthy person who who, who could have offered protection. That's why Jackie married Onassis. She felt he could protect her and protect her kids. And maybe that's what would have happened. But I like to think that uh, Diana seemed to be coming into her own. Mm -hmm. And she was taking up causes like AIDS research, the landmine uh, campaigns, especially once the boys graduated and, and were on their own. Maybe she would have become even more active in uh, social causes. Which would have been a headache uh, for the royal family and would have been a headache for particularly the, the Tory government in England because the royals are not supposed to have any opinions. They're not supposed to speak out. But she wasn't necessarily a royal anymore and they couldn't control her. She got $22 million when she divorced uh, Charles. Dang. And $600,000 a, a year. year. Yep. So even if they cut off the 600000 I mean, she didn't necessarily need it. Right. Um, so it would have been interesting how how her life would have progressed had she lived. I like to think she would have been uh, maybe the conscience of the royal family. Sadly, we'll never know. But see, that is what makes me think it was a conspiracy. If I wanted to think of a conspiracy, that, that would be it. Not necessarily Prince Philip, but people in British intelligence and in the British government realized, you know, this woman... She's starting to get into areas where it's getting a little sensitive. Like, what was the what's the British government's involvement in landmines, and what's next? And maybe they thought 
We can't control her anymore. You know, we can't go to Buckingham Palace and say, tell Diana to be quiet because, because the royal family can't be involved in politics. They couldn't say that anymore. So maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're, maybe you're moving me over to the dark side of I conspiracy hope so, theories. Because what you're saying is reminding me a lot of the guy on the crown with the mustache, the secretary. Um, in seasons one and like half of two, he retires and someone, you know, mm-hmm. who, who am I talking about? Yeah, I can't remember his name, but the queen secretary yeah. who pulled the strings be, behind the scenes. Yes, and would tell her, like when she wanted to hire a younger man mm-hmm. as her secretary yeah. because they got along and he understood her and he basically yeah. said, no, uh, this guy's in line to do it and too bad, even though you already told him, uh, nope, not going to happen. Maybe so, man. And they can't, if they can't control her like that, like they could Elizabeth back then, and probably still have an influence on her. Um, I mean, like, I, I get, I understand, I doubt it was the Queen, Philip. I'm sure it was not them, but I wonder if it's those people behind the scenes, the puppet masters, if you will. Ooh, the puppet masters. Is that the title of this episode? <laughs> well, it wasn't, but maybe maybe now we'll have to rethink oh, that. Oh, wow. I never come up with the titles. Maybe we'll have two titles. All right. Okay. Well, I good like job. Good, yes. good, good job. With, well, like uh, I said, I obviously think it was. I think I've moved over to I fully think this very well could have been a conspiracy. Um, I think she had a bad feeling, and I believe her. Gosh darn it. Because too many people don't, and I believe Diana, because she's the people's princess, and she's amazing. You go, girl. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, guys. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joachim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.